Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. John Hall about his work as a psychiatrist, helping others, and living a fulfilled life. John Hall is a psychiatrist based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. He was featured in the book version of A Better Life. In the book, he wrote, I now know that salvation experience I had when I was 13 years old was based on expectation, hope, and in neurobiology, and today I continue to experience that peace and calm that I once attributed to a God without the need for religious belief. I find joy and meaning in helping others overcome the pain and suffering of mental illness. In my job, I don't rely on saying, pray more, while research has shown prayer does not work. I use proven techniques to help others achieve remission from their suffering. I mean, we know neurobiology-wise where the centers of joy and fear reside. We know how to induce joy artificially in people and in animals and in, and in people um, both either um, electronically, magnetics, uh, through drugs, uh, through, and then, you know, this is why people, what drives people is to, you know, maximize joy, to try to avoid fear and hurt. And so it's all about how do you understand that and attribute it to that. So as I said in the quote, I mean, it's, what I had at 13, looking back then, I wanted something to happen. I hoped something would happen. And I attribute it now. Again, it's what, I don't know, 33 years later. But I, in retrospect, attribute it to what I had hoped I would feel. And my brain kind of gave me what I hoped um, through that feeling of the salvation experience. As I said, I mean, later on, you, people can have it through many other avenues. Uh, again, I work with addicts um, in my uh, in my job, and people describe certain drugs as as close to God as they could ever feel. So it is, you know, my uh, belief now is, of course, a joy and pain and joy are. I mean, it's all chemical. It's all physiologic in the brain. You mentioned this salvation experience you had when you were thirteen. What? What was that experience? What was your religious background growing up? And what is that experience you had when you were 13? My parents um, had divorced right before my, right in my fifth grade year. So that would have been around nine or nine years old or so, um, or 10. And I lived with my mom. My mom was quite religious. And we attended a church that while on label was Methodist, was really a Pentecostal uh, style church that mm-hmm. spoke in tongues. They had healings. They had revivals. Uh, my dad, more or less, was kind of a typical U.S. Christian in that he believes. He says he believes, but he never attends church. But if you ask him what religion he is, he's Christian. So, but I live with my mom, and um, she was taking me to church, and I was begrudgingly going one day, you know, <laughs> like most kids do. Uh-huh. And I asked my mom. Uh, kind of why she went to church and she told me about her own joy that she got from uh, belief in God and church and I and uh, she got through that through asking God for it and through prayer so I did that in the car 
And that's the experience. I can have had, quote, the salvation experience that most people say the experience that a, pe- uh, a sense of peace, a sense of calm, a sense of oneness with something greater than yourself. Um, that, and yeah, that's what I experienced that day. And from that point on until roughly first, second year of college, I was a very devout Christian in that, uh, and went to church regularly, prayed every night, read the Bible every night. I would go witnessing with my church. And, um, yeah. So, and again, in retrospect, I think it, and as a psychiatrist, I've tried to analyze myself and through talking with, uh, even my own therapist, uh, previously and friends of, you know, it's pro- that probably was a, an experience of hope that kind of fulfilling the wish of having both my parents and wishing that uh, everything would be okay as a nine or 10 year old um, and needing that sense of peace because I was unsure of, you know, where my parents would be and my parents are divorced and that, you know, share between balancing between parents and having that unsureness and unsteadiness that it kind of was self-fulfilling, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted I wanted to be close to my mom, too. I wanted to understand what my mom was and uh, who my mom was and be accepted by her. And so I think part of that also included just, you know, want a kid wanting to be part of and approve all of his parents. So what caused you to then lose your faith when you were in college? I would say it was, you know, a drowning by a little, a little million holes or death by a million cuts. But there was one particular incident specifically because mm. you know as i told you in high school um you know i was as devout as they came i went again i would go to church sunday sunday night wednesday go witnessing read, read the bible i read the new testament over at least four or five times in my youth and read most of the old testament even though the old testament can be a bit dry at times <laughs> and, so, and i never got through some of those books uh-huh. um but i thought i could defend my faith with the best of them and had very devout faith. One night near the end of my first year, I was electrical engineering at Georgia Tech uh, at the time, and I was doing an all-night study session with these two other classmates. And I, at this point, forget, I think it was optics was the class. And we got into a philosophical debate about religion. And I thought, here I know, I knew I could defend, you know, my faith to these two guys. And uh, these guys started bringing up points about how the Bible became the Bible, the history of the Bible that I never learned, that my church never taught me. Um, my church taught me and literally told us, don't study other faiths. That's the way the devil gets into your brain and works their way into you. And so they literally said, don't read about other stuff. Don't learn about other stuff. Only read the Bible and everything else. So these guys were telling me about the history of the Bible, and they're talking to me about Buddhism and other faiths and other religions and I mean, I had no, nothing to say. I had uh-huh. no counterpoints <laughs> to any of this. And honestly, in, you know, when I walked out that the next day, it was, the sun was coming up. We literally had stayed up all night debating. Mm-hmm. We barely got any studying done. And I really felt like I got my ass handed to me, honestly. Like, and I walked out, saw him in the sun saying, wow, I have a lot to, I have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And that was, the, that was the big crack in the armor at that point, I can really say is these people, these two people showed me, I really don't know what I believe. I don't know the history of the Bible. I don't know why I believe what I believe. I just believe. And, you know, here I am going to Georgia Tech. 
uh, always being on the science team and math team, being very logical in every other aspect of my life, but never questioning my faith. And these two, again, just showed me how much I didn't know. And it, that, I, yeah, that was the moment that I really said, I am going on a quest to understand all religions. I'm, gonna, I'm on a quest to understand all faiths and uh, philosophies. And at that point, really, um, I started just kind of doubting everything. Um, so it was quite a dramatic night that really does stand out, um, just as much as the salvation experience stands out that night stood out for me as a pivotal moment that if that never happened, I don't know what I would believe today because those two really, uh, made a change, a definite change in my way of thinking. Are you still in touch with them? Do they know what happened based on that? No, not at all. I couldn't even tell you their names or I could probably barely recognize them, but I, it's one of those experiences where they probably have no clue <laughs> what <laughs> had on me. And that happens all the time with me as a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, it happens all of our lives. We'd never know, you know, the times that we may have giant influences uh, or whatever else. But these two, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they made an impact. And um, that really changed the course of my, my thinking and my philo- of, of philosophy anyway and religion. Wow. Uh, so. Yeah. Were, were you still interested in that point at becoming a doctor or a psychiatrist at that point, or did that come later? That came later. Um, well, again, I I grew up in right outside of Atlanta uh, in a town called Conyers, Georgia, uh, which may or may not ring a bell to some people. As there's a, Conyers is famous for there was a, a a woman who claims once a month she could speak to the Virgin Mary, hmm. and literally people from all around the country. And, and the world would actually come once a month and just flood Conyers. And this woman would stand out in the middle of, of a field and say, there she is. And this is what she's saying. <laughs> so I, <laughs> and I, we, that was just kind of humorous because that, that happened while I was in college. Um, so I was, you know, right outside of, of um, Atlanta. Georgia Tech was the only college I applied to. Um, I was, again, as I said, in, in high school, math team, science team. Uh, and so I went to Georgia tech, chose electrical engineering actually originally just because it was considered that and aerospace engineering were considered the top hardest majors. And I figured if I didn't, if I didn't like electrical engineering, I could always step quote unquote, step down to something else. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. You love a challenge though. Yeah, no, I love it. I love a challenge. And then I actually really enjoyed math and science. And mm-hmm. so fortunately those were my strong suits. Unlike my sister who, uh, got double majored in undergrad in uh, communications and history and became a lawyer. <laughs> I hate those. So no, my strengths are science and, um, math. And so I went to Georgia tech. Um, no, and at that point that was the end of my first year. And so I was still electrical engineering. And then I worked one, we were, I think we were on the quarter system back then instead of the semester. So I worked one, um, our co-op, they called it, at the Georgia Tech Research Institute, uh, working on computer, uh, the, there's the computer systems, just being a computer systems operator and exploring uh, careers as an engineer. I talked to people who had graduated ahead of me in, in engineering and people at that time, and this, you gotta remember, this was like in 89 or 90, and people were coming back to, that had graduated and said, oh no, the field is dried up. <laughs> and so I, um, realize I didn't like the bureaucracy of a corporation, uh, which is kind of funny now because being a physician is becoming more and more like a bureaucracy and corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't back then. And, 
and so I went to the career center at Georgia Tech, did all the tests, and I physician kept coming up, even and engineer kept coming up. So physician kept coming up. I was in Atlanta downtown, Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta, which is the main uh, charity hospital in Atlanta. Um, was there and I volunteered there one summer in the emergency room. I thought that was really cool. I got to see a lot of interesting things. And I said, I could see myself doing that. And so at that point was near the second year of college for me. And it was quicker for me to finish up still with my engineering, electrical engineering uh, degree, but to just fill my electives with the pre-med requirements. And I was a five-year uh, undergrad, really a four and a half year undergrad because I had worked one quarter and then it took me an extra quarter to get all the electives and take the MCAT and go to medical school. And I applied to one med school, which was the Medical College of Georgia. That was the main college and one of the main college uh, medical schools in Georgia, or it's the one for the university system anyway in Georgia. Um, so I got in there. Um, and there, actually, it wasn't psychiatry or off the bat. It was at, at first, I explored surgery. I explored radiology. Everyone thought I was going to be surgery because early on, I published a paper with a trauma surgeon. I did extra work in the anatomy lab. And um, so everyone thought I was going to surgery. Mm-hmm. Surgery wasn't for me. Uh, I had done way too early in the day. Uh, that was the main thing way too early. I'm not a morning person. So surgery was off the radiology. I almost went emergency room medicine, but then I did my psychiatry rotation. And from there, um, it, it, it did kind of fit with my, a, my skill set, my, uh, way of viewing things and also a balance of life and work. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't be you know, working 12, you know, 15 hour days normally as a psychiatrist, you mm-hmm. wouldn't be paid, you know, it's one of the lower paying doctors, but you also, in my opinion, and through conversations there, people said, good balance of life. Um, and also, also, I was, you know, if you look back and actually hear my dad's, weirdly, it's just very odd. Actually, there's a, a notebook here that my, uh, that Laura, who's my partner, and I saw sitting on my dad's counter. Mm-hmm. And it's really bizarre. Apparently, as a senior in one of my classes, I require it was required for me to write a journal every day for that semester. Mm-hmm. And we we laughed. We were reading it. It sounds exactly like me today. <laughs> and, <laughs> <but> it <was. laughs> and, and it's all about you know um, philosophy of the human condition and you know about uh, what friendship means and about um, being a good person and (laughs) about suffering and about Mm -hmm. how do you help yourself and how, and so I think I was that person to begin with. And and I was that person that people came and just naturally felt comfortable talking with. And so Mm -hmm. it kind of just all things, all the confluence, all the confluences came together, everything came together in medical school to push me towards psychiatry and here I am. Um, after psychi- after re- medical school, you do four years of uh, psychiatry residency. And as I said, I did a, um, a extra year of addiction, uh, psychiatry fellowship, there five years total uh, to finish up my total training um, before going out and getting a real job. Physicians often talk about how difficult residency is how was residency for you what was your experience like um yeah no residency is not a fun time <laughs> it is uh, 
it is a tough time. And uh, I do not recommend getting married right before you do your residency, which is what I um, chose to do. And our marriage lasted uh, only one year. Uh, the, the very beginning of our intern year, which is your first year of residency and to the end of our resident, uh, for, uh, intern year. Mm-hmm. So I was married one year. I do not recommend that for anyone, uh, because it is stressful. Uh, they, they do work you, uh, or you are working very difficult, uh, very long hours. There are now, uh, since that time, there are supposedly more regulations in place that you can't work beyond a certain amount of hours and so many days in a row. Since I'm no longer in academics, I don't know, um, you know, how enforced those are, what res- what the residencies, how that has changed residencies. But at the time, yeah, I mean, there were times you would stay up 24 hours straight and then have to, usually you got, you only had to work half a day the next day in my residency anyway, and then you get, got to go home if you ha- were on call the night before. Uh, but you're on call at least once a week which means you're up pretty much most of the night and uh, the first year and the second year usually uh, like that. So, yeah, no, uh, sometimes I wonder if I could do it again at my age and just how much, you know, how I take care of myself and the Mm -hmm. sleep, you know, that I I feel like I need and the balancing of exercise and work and lifestyle. I, you know, sometimes I wonder if I could do it again. Um, you know, the, the answer is who knows, probably could if I needed to, but I wouldn't want to. Do you think it being so difficult is beneficial or do you think it could you could have the same experience without it being so brutal? <sighs> well, brutal, and, and it depends on what you mean by brutal, because I mean, I mean, obviously people survive it. I mean, I don't think anyone, I mean, not very, there's very few cases of people really being uh, residency, really making them either not quit being a resident or um, or other worse out- outcomes or of mm-hmm. course, worse. Out- you know, sometimes you hear it, but, um, I th- it is kind of a, 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 trial by fire or a, a pride thing that once you kind of get through it, just like medical school, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone can get through it. It's some pe- people jokingly describe it as putting your mouth up to a fire hose. And, uh, I joke about medical school that I've, I lost parts of my childhood and my memory because you just sit there and you study, 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 shoving facts into your brain. And, um, you know, can someone learn the same material, uh, without the, I don't know, it being so difficult. Um, I don't know. Yes and no. There are, I would say there are times when, when things get tough and everything else, that's when you really, learn the most you have you know you have to turn on and you have to you know it the you know best memories are the memories that are burned into your brain the deepest are the ones that are associated with uh, strong emotions mm-hmm. and and so i mean just fl- just plain facts and going through the motions doesn't really uh get remembered in someone's brain the strongest memories are emotional memories so there are parts of residency that you know through some of that uh, toughness you actually learn i think more um are there ways that are better i mean again i don't do academics anymore um so i can't speak to the research literature of what's the optimal um residency what does it look like as far as toughness and everything else but Mm -hmm. i think mine was pretty reasonable looking back um i survived um my marriage didn't but i don't think it would have survived uh, no matter what uh Mm -hmm. looking 
Um, but uh, it definitely didn't help and it added to the stress because uh, we were both doing our in- own internships. Your wife at the time was, uh, was also a resident? Yeah, she um, uh, was an internal medicine a resident. We both finished medical school at the same time. Different medical schools uh, we met uh, doing visiting uh, rotations uh, during our third year at a um, hospital in Savannah, Georgia. And we met there, dated, and again, yeah, got married. And so we both uh, matched at University of Florida, and she did her internal medicine residency, and I did psychiatry there. Did you identify as, as a non-believer at that point, or were you still identifying as a Christian? Uh, not as a Christian. Uh, I was uh, probably at best at that point was, if I remember correctly, more I didn't. I was one of those others, I think, as they, as the research now says, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I, well, I was neither staunchly atheist, but I was also wasn't religious. I was an, another or a non, just a agnostic in some categories. Mm-hmm. So no, I, um, I did get married Catholic because my uh, ex-wife um, was raised Catholic, but I didn't have a belief system that I really cared about at that time. Uh, obviously, you went to, to through residency with people of different different faiths, people who were religious and you who, who weren't really religious at that point. Do you think you saw things in different ways, being not religious versus your religious colleagues? Yeah. Um, I de- well, yeah, the, the short answer is yes, because, you know, I remember one uh, woman who, female resident, who was a, a Seventh-day Adventist, and so she filtered everything she was learning through her faith. And to me at the time, I was like, well, that's awfully biased. You know, mm-hmm. I, how do you, how are you going to accurately treat a, a Muslim or a Buddhist or Hindu or an atheist if you're seeing everything through your, your faith? So I, I had that skew in my head because uh, I was just, in my opinion, just there to absorb what we understood, what was the facts, and um, not unattached from any religion. I would say most of my uh, fellow residents, though, were, again, would probably identify as some religion, but most of them were not, quote, religious. Uh, If you understand that, you know, most people in America identify as Christian, but most don't practice it or follow it or read it or whatever else. Mm -hmm. You just kind of you, you say you what you are because that's where you were raised. And I think most of my colleagues, that's what they would say, but they were neutral when it came to other, other faiths. And, you know, I didn't have any issues with them and they didn't have any issues with me. So I didn't see religion being a huge barrier. Let's just say that in residency, especially I didn't, you know, except for this, a few residents who, you know, again, were very devout. And when you had conversations with it, they saw their, psychiatric conditions through funneled through their faith and honestly it's like similar to my mom uh getting back to you know everything boils back down to your childhood to some degree <laughs> to, uh-huh. a, to a psychiatrist mm-hmm. uh, you know, my mom still continues to be a very uh very devout follower and for a time she actually went and got a master's in counseling um when i was in college and she became a counselor uh and became a christian counselor and um, when I became a psychiatrist, we would have conversations and I would say, well, help me understand how would you work with someone who was gay? And my mom would say, absolutely not. Gay is a sin. You know, being gay or being homosexual is a sin. Mm-hmm. Like, well, then how do you work with people? I mean, how do you know? I mean, that's that also that's awfully limiting. And 
we would get into quite a bit of heated discussions uh, at that point. And, you know, that she, her faith essentially limited who she could help uh, and divided. To, and this gets into the greater scope of religion and in my belief system of religion divides people into a group of us versus them uh, to at the end of the day, and which is not helpful mm. at all. Has that put a strain on your relationship with your mother? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you could definitely say that. Uh, I have chosen not to speak to her for the past four years. So yes, uh, okay. it was more than just um, that, that difference, of course. But mm. I would say religion, her religious beliefs was uh, one of the biggest, uh, one of the bigger reasons why I chose uh, to end that relationship um, among various, uh, there was many other uh, reasons between us as well. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I have, and I would, um, I even tell my own patients who uh, have difficulty with their own parents, you know, of course, in our country and in many, in most countries, you know, you, you give uh, parents and family more, tr- uh, what's the word, uh, forgiveness and mm-hmm. more uh, reasons to accept them uh, than you would a complete stranger or a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone was disrespectful to you, you didn't know, you would say, well, you're never going to be a friend. Right. Or if someone was already a friend and if they hurt you enough, you say, well, you're no longer my friend. Well, we give, we don't do that. With, most people don't do that with family. And it, to me, at one point, it re- and again, not just by myself, but we're talking with friends and other professionals and everything else of, you know, mm-hmm. this is not a healthy relationship for me, and I try, you know, I tried and tried and tried. And for me, I cannot remain in that relationship and chose to end that relationship for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and not to get too personal in there, but that's, sure. um, yeah. But re- religion played some part in that because of her her unwillingness to accept my, um, to respect my beliefs and to respect how I chose to live my life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Right. You mentioned after residency, you went to specialize in addiction. What what caused that interest in in treating addiction? Really, it was a one of the mentors of mine um, named uh, Dr. Gold. Um, he was the head of addiction medicine at the time, and, la- and later became the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the time, um, or later on at, at the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. And he, so he was one of my mentors and he, um, and I would meet together about what my future was like. And he was actually, he's, um, Mark Gold is his name and he's actually uh, has a, uh, quite, um, prolific research wise and very high standing in the field of addiction, psychiatry, and addiction medicine. And so he was really the one that kind of talked me into it saying and convincing me that addiction psychiatry is kind of the um, ideal blend of what in psychiatry we call the, the biopsychosocial model of psychiatry. And what that means is, and this is what every psychi- uh, psychiatry resident is trained to evaluate a person is, uh, first you look at their biology, you look at their family history of uh, psychiatric illnesses and major medical illnesses. You look at their biology in terms of their own current medical problems. And then you also look at their, what they're, what we call psych, uh, psychology. What, how were they raised? How were they, what 
um, were their parental figures? What important values were instilled in them? Was there a big trauma in their life? Um, you know, so you look at their internal belief system and how they're, again, what they were instilled with um, growing up. And then the last part is social. What are, where are they now? What's their social situation now? Um, their stresses, job, relationship, financial. You look at every aspect of their current life, mm. how that is affecting someone. So you add all that together. And of course, everyone, when, you, when someone comes in to me, you know, I, I try to weigh out you know, biopsychosocial influences of what has led someone to be in front of me. And when you look at someone with addiction, that's that is kind of the classic combination of all three, because usually people with addictions have a family history of addictions. doesn't mean you can't be an addict without a family history of addiction. Uh, if you truly work at it hard enough, you can. <laughs> but mm-hmm. most people with addictions, unfortunately, have a family history of addictions. Most people with addictions have a very traumatic childhood or can or a lot of them do. Anyway, I won't say most, but a lot of them do. Um, a lot of them have a lot of, uh, false beliefs or false coping, bad coping skills. They got to unlearn. And then because of their addiction, their social situation, what, you know, what finally leads them to coming in, they're usually destroyed or nearly destroyed. Most of their relationships and everything else, usually the last thing to go is someone's job mm-hmm. because that, that pays for their, uh, their lifestyle and their addiction. That, but, um, you know, you, you, but usually they've, created or un- unwittingly and unconsciously not intentionally created this chaos around them and so they're suffering personally there's other people are suffering around them and they have a bio- biological and upbringing um, propensity for all that and so it really does take all the aspects of training as a psychiatrist and so that that drew me to that mm-hmm. um, I would say most people you know, specialize uh, into something they have a personal experience uh, with. Well, I, I'm one of the rare exceptions, actually. I don't have a family history of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, most doctors who do work in addictions are in recovery themselves. Uh, I am one of the rare ex- uh, exceptions to that. And um, I think that both provides uh, a benefit as well as a downside. Most uh, doctors or most people in recovery um would or not okay most is a strong word a lot of people in recovery would say they would want their doctor to also be in recovery so mm-hmm. they understand uh however i think i because of my own experiences i think there is a uh, some objectivity and some other benefits i can pr- uh, provide and bring not being in recovery i joke that i'm in recovery from life um, <laughs> you know <laughs> what counts as an addiction does it have to be a harmful behavior well, excellent question. I mean, the term actually addiction is no longer clinically used. That's uh, that's still obviously used a lot socially, but it's not clinically in our what's what we call our DSM. Mm. Uh, the DSM five is our current uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, episode, uh, volume five, and so it's our it's our list of all our diagnoses in psychiatry and what criteria does it meet. And so now they've gotten rid years ago it was addiction it would be like alcohol addiction then in dsm-4 it was abuse versus dependence abuse being mainly viewed as a willful choice of misuse uh so like someone who chose to go out and uh, binge drink and get a dui but someone who wasn't truly dependent yet Mm -hmm. dependent implied uh, and constituted a loss of control you know the person who 
continue to drink despite recurrent multiple consequences and the person who truly had lost control and given up their own values and morals and sense of who they are for that behavior. Um, now in the DSM-5, we say a use disorder. And so they've gotten rid of the word abuse and dependence, thinking abuse and dependence, uh, just like addiction has a pejorative connotation. Mm-hmm. It has a socially, it has a negative viewpoint. And so the DSM and psychiatry were trying to get rid, trying to get away from words that have any kind of socially negative connotation. And so now we say use disorder, mild, moderate to severe. Um, but I mean, the, the bottom line is still when people say addiction, they mean loss of control to whatever it is. And it doesn't obviously have to be a chemical, you know, we're here talking about alcohol or drugs, um, you know, uh, but it can be anything. Obviously in the news, there's sex addiction, there's gambling addiction. I say anything can be an addiction, uh, if you do it to the exclusion of other priorities, if you do it to the exclusion of other responsibilities, if you're starting to break your own sense of ethics and causing harm to not only yourself but to other people, anything can be "quote unquote" an addiction or it can be a problem. Uh, gaming, you know, that's that is a hotly debated topic. Can can gaming be an you know addictive? Can the iPhone? Can you know our our clickbait games? Can Candy Crush be an addiction? That is being you know discussed and debated right now. Um, and my point of view is, any, again, as I said, anything that um, prevents you from doing uh, what other priorities and causes you harm, it's not good for you regardless. And so you could call that an addiction. So Candy Crush could be an addiction. <laughs> again, hotly debated. I'm sure I, uh, you and I will both get tons of emails on both sides of that. Uh, <laughs> um but um, in my opinion, yes, if you want mm-hmm. in, in the in the looser definition of the term addiction, absolutely. I, I do believe that. Right. And I guess the other issue is that, you know, in the complexities of the human experience, we're never going to be able to nail down descriptions for each. You know, it's going to cover everybody. So there's always going to be some wiggle room, I'm assuming. Oh, that's, that's what I always. Yeah. At, at the end of any kind of debate or discussion, I always say that our language eventually fails us. You know, we eventually run out of the correct words to describe either people or behavior or whatever. And eventually we just have to say we're we got close enough with what our language allows us to. Right. Uh, so absolutely. That, that's what I in this sense would boil down to. Yeah. Since this is your speciality, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the growing legalization of marijuana for both recreational and medical purposes. Oh, you're asking easy questions. That is uh, <laughs> that is a tough one um, with arguments e- equal on both sides. Medical marijuana, good or bad, I would say yes uh, is a general answer that there is both good and bad. As we said, no, you know, like an issue like this, nothing mm-hmm. is all nothing's all bad, and it's a very complex issue. My concern is when it comes to children and adolescents and in relation to drug use, uh, it's a direct core. Adolescents will use drugs in direct correlation with perceived risk. And so if it is legal, if in a state it's legal, 
the perceived risk obviously goes down. Therefore, the use in children and adolescents and young adults go up dramatically. Mm-hmm. And the research, I think, is bearing that out uh, with the legalization and the states that where it is legal. So to me, the concern is um, young people using it while their st- brains are still being developed because our brains really aren't fully formed until they're really 24 years of age. Mm-hmm. And what, what I mean by that is you're born with as many neurons as you're ever going to be born with. And from then on out, actually what our brain must do is prune. We must get rid of extra neurons in order to become better, smarter, faster. We actually have to lose neurons in order to learn how to walk, actually. You know, babies do trial and error of how to walk, and that's actually teaching your brain how to walk. And you actually got to get rid of those uh, extra neurons that aren't helpful for that. And so without pruning, you would have too many neurons that would be all over the place and, uh, and you wouldn't be able to do what we can do now. And so the last part of our brain to get pruned and formed really is our frontal lobe. And that happens around 24 years of age. Uh, for those of you who may not know, our frontal lobe is the center of our impulse control. Hmm. It allows us to stop, think, and make a decision. And so, you know, the period of adolescence, you're our, you know, your strength center, your coordination center and sensory centers uh, are all peaking at that point. And we're and they're curious and, and as they should be, because that's how we learn. So we have adolescents who are curious and fully physically able um, and but yet their impulse control isn't set in yet. And that's the risk uh, for drinking, for marijuana, for any other drug of abuse is that you're mucking around and messing up with their um, neuronal development. And it's still a vulnerable stage at that point because the research is very clear. If, if you wait to drink, if you wait to smoke marijuana or even cigarette, if you wait to do any drug of abuse till after 24 or after your rates of becoming depend, dependent or addicted to that drug go down dramatically. And so if we actually did drinking age and use and any kind of use age to based on science, it would be around 24 years of age. Uh, we'll never get, I think, in our country any higher than 21. But, um, you know, if we wanted to really do it based on science, it'd be about 24 because that's roughly when our brains are, are finally developed. So would you support marijuana legalization recreationally, but just as long as people understand that, that if you're young, you shouldn't be using it? Well, there, again, that's the problem because in the states that you we have legalized it, because you know, in Colorado, I, I can only speak of Colorado because I had be, went to vacation there and actually I went into a store hmm. and said, teach me, <laughs> teach me about the laws here because uh-huh. in North Carolina, it's still illegal. So I, in, North, in um, Colorado, I went into a... To a um, a shop, a medical marijuana shop, and said, teach me everything. And it's the same laws basically apply as to alcohol. 21 and up, you can't be smoking in public, just like you can't have open container. Mm-hmm. You can't, uh, has to be on a private residence um, or an illegal space, um, a pot uh, where you can smoke marijuana. And so it's the exact same laws as, as, as alcohol. Um, again, my concern is the youth. Mm-hmm. Would I... You know, do I do I really think marijuana for a 30 year old um, 
who smokes once a month that it's going to destroy their lives? Most likely not. I mean, it's you know, it's the same rates of addiction as alcohol and most other drugs is about 10 to 15 percent of people who try a drug of abuse will get have a problem with that. I won't call I won't label it as addiction, but well, it can develop a problem with that drug um, or alcohol at some point in their lives. Mm. So marijuana falls into that category. And again, and so to me, though, it's the concern. And I keep going to this is is the young is adolescents, it's children, it's um, the effects that it has on those that it shouldn't be. And the more you make it legal, the more accessible you're going to make it for those children. Um, do I think it's a great money making thing for the state? Absolutely. I mean, good Lord. I mean, you know, the tax money and revenue, um, states can, you know, and they funnel, supposedly funnel all of that money into treatment, uh, programs and, and into public education and stuff. Uh, the research is not there yet to tell, to really tell us is, does that balance it out? Does that, you know, is there a net positive versus negative effect? Um, I mean, no, I'm a, I drink alcohol myself, but again, if for myself, if we really wanted to do what's best for our own bodies and society, none of us would be drinking. None of us would be smoking. None of us smoke cigarettes, you know, and smoke cigarettes are legal. You know, if we really wanted to do what's best for ourselves and the best for our, for our community and for friends or anything else, we wouldn't be drinking and smoking. That's just plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Most people laugh at that. <laughs> when I say that, they're like, well, I, I want my drink after the wor- after work. I get it. It's legal. Prohibition was a horrible failure. Um, and so I don't know what, honestly, I don't know what the correct answer is because people love their vices and, um, you know, alcohol and pot, any drug, uh, fires off the pleasure center, which is called the nucleus accumbens in the brain. Uh, we can show that easily on brain scan, good sex, good piece of chocolate fires off the nucleus accumbens. I mean, we are biologic creatures and, you know, we, we can, we can show that drugs of abuse just allow that center to fire off higher than it would normally be able to fire physiologically, mm. you know? And so that, that's why it can be hijacked. What a quote unquote hijack. That's what we say in the, in the field is that drugs of abuse hijack the brain because yeah, I mean, you can only get so much euphoria from gambling and gambling can be an addiction. Um, and so, uh, shopping to some people can be an addiction, but there's only so much pleasure physiologically that a person can develop and it can get, but then you, you smoke or you inject or eat, or, you know, you put a chem, uh, a foreign chemical in your body that fires off the pleasure center higher than it ever could before your brain, you know, your brain's going to go, I like that. Mm-hmm. I want more of that. It, it, it's, it's simple and it's not, it's not complex. And so you can completely understand why people, you know, start using drugs of abuse, but no one ever sets off to say, I can't wait to be an addict. I can't wait to grow up and have a problem with alcohol and destroy my life. Most people, you know, just, it feels good. I've seen a lot of talk lately uh, in the news media. Um, people are talking about sugar as being addictive. Is that something you've seen as well in your work? The bottom line answer, the, the easy answer is no. Uh, I do not believe sugar as a true addiction. Because um, you just, I say that hesitantly. I had one person in my entire career that uh, Splenda, this person was truly, I could say, was addicted to Splenda. She would eat boxes of Splenda a day. Wow. Um, and, but that was one person and it affected 
um, in, you know, exploring why she, uh, did that. It did things for her, uh, beneficial things. Well, like most of us, it did beneficial things more than it caused harm for her, but she couldn't stop doing it. And Mm -hmm. she knew that it probably wasn't healthy. Other than that one example, and as I, as we say, an N of one is an anecdote. It doesn't prove anything, um, that sugar to me is not, is, isn't, uh, and it can, cannot be an addiction because our body runs on sugar. Our brain runs on glucose. Our brain, I mean, glucose and fructose are the main, is the only energy source for our brain, actually. It has to be glucose, if not glucose, fructose. I mean, but glucose is the main energy for our brain. Um, and again, one part of addiction, as I said, is to uh, give up other important things. Well, no one, now people overeat. That's mm-hmm. definitely true. Uh, food uh, can be an addiction to some people um, because it can lead to, again, to suffering for that person. You, people can binge and then purge and have eating disorders and anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. Um, but I just don't, I don't know. I don't see the evidence that sugar in and of itself as an addiction um, is sh- pure sugar, unrefined sugar, good for our bodies. Um by itself, no. I mean, obviously, it has to be balanced. To me, it's you know, uh, varieties the spice of life. Our diet should be, you know, a variety of fat, protein, complex carbs, simple carbs, ev- you know, everything else. Mm-hmm. So, if you're doing any one of any one of too much of anything, it's unhealthy. If you eat all fat, you're not going to be healthy. If you're going to do all protein, you're not going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. I just don't see the evidence there for sugar in and of itself being addictive. I see it. I see it uh, wrapped in a lot of other uh, things, other types of food. You know, we're trying to demonize some types of food and praise us some types of food. And again, I think it's it boils down to just let's just be reasonable. Mm-hmm. We should eat mostly fruits and vegetables, um, uh, occasional protein. You know, some you know we obviously have to have protein in our diets, uh, mostly fruits and vegetables, and occasionally. You know, I follow myself the 90-10 rule of I eat well 90% of the time, but if presented with a piece of cake, I will eat one. I, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, on a Friday night, I'll let myself, you know, enjoy myself, you know, and not let yourself go. So, uh, you know, being someone who specializes in, in who we are and the physical and mental forces that shape us, what is something that you wish more people knew about themselves or their behavior which could help us be happier or understand ourselves more clearly? Wow, you are asking the tough questions today. Uh, <laughs> I have one choice here. Let's think here. Um, it doesn't have to be one. You could, you know, I was going to say, yeah. say, people are com. Well, as I joke, I say people are simple and complex at the same time. Um, you know, people are very simple that, you know, we're pleasure-seeking uh, creatures, animals that avoid pain, just like every other creature. Mm-hmm. We just have a, a more evolved frontal lobe that lets us stop, think, and make more complex rationales for our decisions, even though it still boils down to you know, what maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain at the end of the day. It just gets, gets quite complex. And, and then you add to that previous experience and um, – Maybe and, and at worst traumas, PTSD and stuff like that. The question gets quite complex. You know, how do you ha- best help someone? Um, it's gets quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, first answer, I would say, 
obviously there's not one thing I would say. I would, I would say a few things. Mm-hmm. I would say one, go back to basics, focus on getting enough sleep, exercising, balance of work and personal time, uh, downtime, fun time, you know, whatever fuels you or recharges you. But we need, you know, our country, you know, for, to a large degree doesn't get enough sleep. Uh, we don't exercise enough. We eat too much. Um, and we're too obsessed with, um, uh, achievement and job and everything else and not enough of other maybe aspects of our life. So go back to basics and look at the balance of your life and make sure you're sleeping, eating well and exercising. So that's step one. Mm. Uh, again, that's the basis of every, you know, that's every doctor, honestly. I mean, and I, one of my little pet peeves as, you know, being an MD is, um, the quote unquote alternative medicine movement, which is, you know, to me is not real. It's either proven to be helpful or not. So it's mm-hmm. either medicine or it's not. They, you know, they'd like to demonize doctor, the uh, most doctors as, you know, we don't pay attention to the basics. No, we do. Trust me. That's, we're, you know, taught, ex- look at exercise, look at sleep, look at how they're eating. Um, but mo- for, for, mo- for the majority of our patients, that, really doesn't cut it. You know, if that cut it, if that stopped, if that cured schizophrenia, great, but it mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, if that cured, you know, bipolar disorder, great, it, but it doesn't. Um, so it doesn't cure the real, the, the illnesses that I see. It may cure, um, the worried well, uh, as we say in our, in psychiatry, but for the major mental illnesses, it, it's just it's a part of the treatment plan, but it's not going to keep them well. Um, number two, for most people, and again, I'm, I'm not talking severe mental illness uh, at this point. I'm, I'm still talking about for the majority of the population mm-hmm. um, that accept that change is going to be part of life and, ex- and accept that expectations are not going to be always fulfilled because I would say a lot of my own patients that I do therapy with get stuck at some point in their life because they say my life shouldn't or wasn't supposed to end up this way or, or I can't move beyond this tragedy or this loss. Now again, and I'm not talking about PTSD in this picture and this time that's a whole um, that I'm going to put in a special category. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but a lot of people get stuck of, but life shouldn't be this way. This is not, you know, what I expected. Well, life never, you know, we, and I jokingly say, no, life never promised you that, you know, and um, that a lot of times I'm saying, you know, we'll recommend we got to create a new level of expectation or how do we roll with the change? How do we learn to accept when things don't turn out the way we wish they did? Because most of our suffering and this is actually very a very Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. On my during that time of my hunting, this is something that actually I think is a good um, it, it was a good insight. And mm-hmm. in, in, in on the Buddhist end, is we suffer mostly because of our own expectations. We suffer because we wish something else would have happened than it then really happened. We wish we had gotten that job. We wish that we had different friends or a different boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or partner or whatever. We wish we had not the life we have. Mm -hmm. And so how do you look at what life is and either uh, learn to 
either learn to what is in your control to change it and modify it the best you can and work hard at that or learn to accept the things that you cannot change. And you may recognize that statement that's actually a serenity prayer, uh, a religious um, uh, term that AA uses a lot. It's the serenity prayer of God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that can't, I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And, and this is what I say, that most religions actually have nuggets and a lot of truth to you know each part of it. Just because something is called a religion doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. A lot of actually wisdom in a lot of religions actually can be pretty good reflections and truths of life. That's how the, you know, part of how they came to be. So, you know, whether this is a religious came out of religion, it still doesn't make it, it doesn't make it wrong. I, mm-hmm. I still think it's a true statement that there a lot of stuff is outside of our control. And actually I try to teach my own patients that most of what happens in our life is outside of our control. A little bit is in our control, how we choose to respond to a situation. How do we choose to act and you know what's our next behavior what are we going to do that's in our control but most of everything else is out of our control so learning how to really recognize the difference there is a first step a major first insight into uh, usually healing usually learning where the suffering is coming from from that person and moving forward um because you know in therapy we say first you got to get insight uh, into what's causing you suffering, and then you got to learn how to change it. You know, how do you, <laughs> but without knowing why the, you know, that there's even a monkey on your back making your life miserable, if you can never even see the monkey, you're not going to get better. And so, first, you have to see the problem and understand the problem, and then you got to see how you can change or fix the problem. And so, um, yeah, so I don't, I think that's, two steps I would say of what would help most people would be go back to basics, you know, sleep exercises and everything, you know, do the, do the basics of self care and then, um, look and really see what your expectations were, um, and see how, you know, those are what is what's, you know, contributing to your suffering and what's really in your control and what's not. We all, most of us anyway, I'm not gonna say everyone, most of us are instilled with a sense of joy when we help others um and so i would also say to other people to look at your life to see where you can sneak that in to help others not just um friends but even people that maybe not know you volunteer at a soup kitchen volunteer um at uh some you know again donate clothes do something do do street cleanups there's an atheist group in charlotte that they do street cleanups. They do go to soup kitchens and help out. They, I mean, they're very active in um, assisting with the community. And the research shows, you know, independent of any religious uh, thing, it's, it's the act of helping helps most people feel uh, more joyful. So anyway, so my point about my own career is I try to do what I, what I, I try to practice what I preach, so to speak, and that I, um, will in the future just continue my practice, um, continue to try to treat the range of people, uh, both diagnostically, um, uh, in terms of psychiatric severity of illness, the types are, you know, cause that fuels me different, seeing different types of uh, conditions and suffering keeps me on my game. I love learning as we've <laughs> well established. Mm-hmm. Um, but also helping people of various socioeconomic, uh, racial and everything. I don't want to limit myself in any of that. 
And I feel like I've developed a good niche in where I am uh, occupationally. From a personal, uh, professional piece of my life, I'm pretty content. Um, uh, you know, I'm content occupationally, I'm content socially. Laura and I are training currently for a bicycle vacation in Italy next June. So her, we, we're both uh, really working hard to get in better, better shape because we're going to be biking in the Dolomites, um, the Italian Dolomites in June for seven days uh, with a bicycle touring company. And uh, we both can't wait for that. Uh, so uh, that's one of our goals. Wow. Uh, You've got a lot in your plate. Um. Okay, sure. <laughs> and uh, you, I think you also know, maybe, I mean, the audience doesn't know, but I also ballroom dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer competing, which took up a lot of time, but I, I've been ballroom dancing for also eight, nine years, and so I do that. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And on top of that, bringing my father uh, up to live with us. So, yeah, that, that is actually, now that I'm talking it through, is a lot. <laughs> I probably need to re- take my own advice and take a look at that first step. <laughs> John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.